when the smoke is cleared, everything is done, Jesus is still there. And when we just look at the book to try to figure out events for the sake of knowledge, we've lost the mystery, we've lost the reverence, we've lost the awe. And so I think whenever we look at the end times or look at verses, that uh, prophetic verses, always make sure you look at it with a sense of awe and reverence. Um, so with those thoughts in mind, go ahead and read Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14 at your tables. And underline key verses that come to you or key words that come to you as you're reading it. If you have your own Bibles, if you have your iPhone, if you have your iPad, your smartphone, your Google phone, whatever. Because I don't want to spend another year in the book of Matthew, um, we're just hitting these these verses sort of with a highlight and not in depth as we could. But as I was going through this, and I just sort of underlined some key thoughts for me when I was going through that, and in verse 4 it says, see that no one leads you astray. Um, in verse 6, see that you are not alarmed. Uh, also in verse 6, but the end is not yet. And then in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And all those things just basically tell me that what Jesus is telling us, it's okay, he's still got it under control. I don't have to be alarmed, I don't have to be afraid, I don't have to worry. This is all part of God's plan. It's not like one day, you know, Jesus is up there in heaven and goes, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. You know, I mean, he knows. And so this is just part. And so where do we put our trust in this process? Um, <clears throat> realistic expectations are essential to the success of any venture. Uh, part of premarital counseling is to help people develop a realistic expectation of what marriage is. Parenting classes a realistic expectation of what it is to be a parent. All of life, you, they set these expectations so that when things go south, you're not totally, 
you know, discouraged by it. You just realize it's part of what's going to take place. Before the Battle of Waterloo, um, the Duke of Wellington called together his captains and his leaders and said, here's the plan. We have an international army here, many of them who have never fought together, and we're going against Napoleon, the greatest general ever, and all of his elite troops. We're outnumbered, and there's no way we're going to win. But what we are going to do is stay here and fight and let Napoleon's army attack us all day long until um, Otto von Blücher, the prince of Bismarck, comes to our rescue. He told him exactly what was going to take place, told him how it was going to happen, and sure enough, that happened all day long, and then Otto came and they defeated Napoleon. So the Prussians came in, and he just they knew it. During World War II, what did, what did Winston Churchill say? You know, he said to them ahead of time, to the people, I promise you only blood, sweat, toil, and tears. That, you know, as we stand against Germany, that's what I can promise you. It's not going to be easy. Um, it's not going to be one overnight. It's going to be over the long haul. Um, so he set their expectations to understand what life is really going to be like during this particular battle. Realistic expectations are just absolutely essential for the success of any venture, um, especially one when you're going up against great obstacles. And the same thing is true for the Christian life. Um, one of the things I even tell people in marriage or marriage counseling, I go, the most important thing you can do is have realistic expectations and communicate those expectations because uncommunicated, unrealistic expectations will always cause frustration and anger because when your expectations aren't met, you're going to be angry. And when you're angry, you're going to just start attacking the people that are around you. And so when you can lower your expectations, when you can lower your expectations, you have a higher sense of gratitude. The higher your ex expectations, the lower sense of gratitude. I give the example, if I don't expect Gwen to cook dinner, and I come home, and there's dinner, I know Craig should be here. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I come home and there is a dinner and I act like I didn't expect it I show gratitude I show thankfulness if I expect it I'm indifferent to it and I, I lose that sense of gratitude the same thing is true with God the same thing is true in our Christian life and so it's being able to just have realistic expectations. The same thing in the Christian life. So in this passage, Jesus explained to the disciples and to us what we are to expect in this world and from this world between the two comings, between his first coming, his ascension, and his second coming. Um, and there are two parts of the passage. If you look at verses 1 to 3, you'll see the first part. The second part comes in verses 4 through 14. 
Uh, and in verses 1 to 3, Jesus has made this stunning statement. And he's made a series of stunning statements in all of chapter 23. And then in the end, he says, Jesus said his final public sermon that God is going to leave the temple of Jerusalem desolate. It's going to be destroyed. Um, and the disciples have just come out of that temple. And they're, they're in the courtyard. And they're looking at this temple. And for those of you who don't know, this temple was an architectural marvel. It was started 20 years before, and it's not going to be finished until AD 66. And so it's there. And historians have just said, this was it. And especially for the Jewish people. This was their place, uh, this is what their acknowledgement, that God was with them. And uh, he was there. And so it was obviously some strange words that are coming out of Jesus when he says, this is going to be destroyed. This temple is going to be destroyed. Um, and so the Lord's words probably were inconceivable to the disciples. How can this be? How could it be that God would visit the final destruction upon the temple and leave it desolate? Um, and so basically the disciples said, okay, if Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, then that must mean it's God's final judgment. And if it's God's final judgment, then that means we're going to be, we're going to be reigning with the king in this lifetime. So they come and they start asking questions. They said, we got to ask some questions to get this all figured out. Now, that temple that was, that was built and took 40 years to build was destroyed in AD 70. Four years after it was completed, it was destroyed. The same government that built it, the same government took it down stone by stone and threw it in the valley. The greatest architect of the time. Um, and the place of worship for the Jew. So the disciples come to them and they ask for clarification in verse 3. And they ask basically three questions. Tell us when will these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? And what shall be the sign of the end of the world? And in Christ's answer, which we find in the passage, and in the passage that will follow for the next couple of weeks, uh, he's there to correct their faulty thinking. And... That's what the scripture is there for us for, is to correct faulty thinking. And there's nothing more important in living a healthy Christian life than for us to deliberately submit to the mind of Christ, to deliberately submit to his word. I was with a person the other night, and he's telling me about his life, and his marriage is failing, he feels his life is failing, and yet he's continuing to think that I can solve this with the same mind that created it. He's trying to solve a problem with faulty thinking. Instead of saying, no, wait a second. What does God's word say about this? And how do I align myself up with God's word? So the disciples were mistaken their thinking about what was just about to happen. And so it was vital that their thinking be corrected. And if Jesus had allowed them to go on with their faulty thinking 
and that things didn't take place the way they expected to, where would have been their discouragement? Where would have been their despair? Where would have been their disbelief? Which is the same thing that happens in the churches today. People have faulty thinking about how God should work in their lives and their time frame, and then when God doesn't do it, people start to say, well, then God must not be real. God must not be real. Ed, I'm going to use you as an illustration since you're wearing that shirt. What does that shirt say? Could you stand up? What does that shirt say? Right. And why didn't you want to wear that? That's the difference of being able to acknowledge that regardless of what's taking place, my God is stronger. And he doesn't work on my time frame. He doesn't work on my schedule. He doesn't work on my agenda. But I need to work on his and allow him to be that center of my life. Um, so he asks these questions, and we see in verses 4 through 14, Jesus' response. But in this response, he not only tells the disciples something that is important for them in the next few years, but something that will happen in the years to come, and of hundreds of years to come. But he also gives them counsel, which is immediately relevant to their daily living at that time, and is also immediately relevant to our living, the Christian life now. And the grand theme, the grand theme in all these verses is that the Christian must prepare for opposition. The Christian must prepare for opposition. Uh, not triumph. Triumph isn't coming until the coming of Christ. And sometimes we want to give people the impression that once you become a Christian, all of life is going to be okay. You know, and that, you know, whatever you pray for, whatever you desire. I've shared the story when I was at All Roberts University, how, you know, there was the name and claim of theology that people were going around. And, you know, somebody would come by and say, I claim that. And, well, what does that mean? He says, well, if I name it and I claim it, it's eventually going to be mine. And I go, I don't think so. I paid for this car. You know, and until God reveals to me, uh, you're not getting it. Um, but that was sort of this mentality. And that was how people looked at Christ. And then when things didn't happen the way that they thought it would happen, there was this tremendous fall off of people going to church because obviously God can't be trusted because he didn't answer every one of my requests. And so, you know, the theme is, no, there's going to be a lot of opposition before I return. And there's going to be opposition in your life. But what did he say? Don't fear. 
you know, this is just the beginning. I've got it under control. Put your faith in me. So the disciples thought if Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, that means the judgment is going to come. And if the judgment is going to come, that means that Christ is going to set up his glorious kingdom and we're going to reign as kings with him. And the Lord Jesus just wants to say to these disciples, you have no idea what you are about to step into. And if you go into what you are about to step into thinking that triumph is just around the corner, you're going to be utterly disappointed. And sometimes I think we just need to be that honest with a person when it comes to Christ. Yeah, Christ will save you. He will free you. He will forgive you. He will love you. He will show you grace. But if you think that everything is going to be wonderful from this point on, I was meeting with another couple, guy who's talking about his marriage, and you know, his wife is not happy with him. And, and rightfully so. And so we're talking, and he goes, well, what do I do now? I go, well, whatever you do, recognize that this isn't going to get better. Goes, what do you mean? I go, it's not going to get better overnight. You, you're here, and you're thinking, oh, wow, I'm, I'm going to change, and I'm going to go home. My wife's going to rise up and call me blessed, and everything is going to be wonderful. I go, not going to happen. You got a long ways to go to rebuild trust. And so, you know, you think she's angry now? When she thinks you're getting better, she's even going to be angrier. Because how can you get better and I'm still suffering? And so, you know, you know be prepared. Um, <clears throat> I tell those things to people and sometimes they never come back to see me. Uh, <laughs> Wow, that's, that's an encouraging word from the pastor. I think I'll go find another church. Um, so. so you have the, so these signs that Jesus says that, that are listed in verses 4 through 12. And they don't tell us that the end is near. All these things occurred. All of these things had occurred in the lifetime of the disciples. Um. But, but we have people today think that, okay, these are only happening now. We only have earthquakes now. We only have wars now. We only have famine now. No, I mean, these things are going to get worse, but they were also happening in the life of the disciples. Um, so, and then notice again how these verses focus on the end is not near. Verse 8, this is only the beginning. And so the, the question that the disciples ask, when is this going to happen, and what are the signs, and what about your coming, and what about the end of the age, those are distinct issues for them. Um, and again, Jesus says in verse 9 that Jesus makes it clear that the full glory of the kingdom is not going to come when the temple is destroyed. Indeed, there's going to be persecution. Christians are to expect to be persecuted, to endure tribulation. And finally, as Jesus speaks to the disciples, he is not encouraging them to engage in end times speculation or to be preoccupied with signs. But rather, he is warning them against being deceived and he's encouraging them and he is exhorting them to endure. So don't get caught up in all of these signs. Make sure you get caught up 
and knowing who is the Lord of the signs, who is in charge of all that. So, but in Matthew 24, verses 4, 4 through 14, there's at least nine major events or qualities or characteristics of this general period of time between um, his first advent and his second. And it's, there will be false Christs. There's always been false Christs. There's always been people who've claimed to be the coming Messiah. We've seen it all the time, you know, whether it be a Jim Jones or a David Koresh or in our time, but throughout history, there have always been those who have claimed to be Christ. There's wars and rumors of wars. I don't think there's ever been a time in human history where there hasn't been a war or a rumor of war. Famines all the time going on. The difference is, we are so in tune with what's going on, we hear it every day. Pestilence, earthquakes, uh, many martyrs. There would be, the, from the time that Stephen was stoned to today, there's martyrs. There were more men or more Christians martyred for their faith during World War II than there were during, during the time of Rome. There's been millions of Christians that have been murdered for their faith throughout the years. And the 20th century has had more Christians killed because of their faith than all of, other, all of the rest of history combined. Um, then false prophets. There's always those coming forth saying, telling things that are not true. Increasing evil and loss of fervent love. The more the evil increases, the less love guides. And that's just going to be a part of our culture. And we hear those things. People talk. We've, we, ha we have a society of hate. And unfortunately, we focus all of the end times on what takes place in the United States. You know, oh, the United States is a hateful country. Then Jesus must be coming tomorrow. You know, and we start predicting that instead of saying, wait a second. God has called us to do something during these times. And then worldwide preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. In general, these signs have been at least partially fulfilled in the, in the time of Jesus. And they are continuing to increase or grow today. Um, so taken as a whole, this opening section ending with Matthew 24, 14, itemizes these general signs, events, situations, which mark the progress of the age. And each year, they seem to grow with intensity. Um, these signs, however, by their very characteristics, and because they have occurred throughout the present age, do not constitute a direct answer to the question of the sign of the coming of the Lord. So again, what's the picture? The picture is not of total perfection and triumph. Jesus is saying, I want you to be prepared. I want you to be prepared for difficulty because it lies ahead. The kingdom of heaven is not going to be upon, upon this earth between my two comings. That it's not going to be wonderful and everything is going to be at peace and everybody's going to love each other and everything is going to be wonderful until he comes back. 
It's not going to take place between. So it gives four pieces of practical instruction, both warning and encouragement for the living of the Christian life. First of all, he says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't preoccupy yourself with signs. Be on your guard. He's telling us that these are going to be many false prophets, many false messiahs, not only in his time, but in ours. And so we must not be misled. And of course, in order to not be misled, we must know what? The word. And so if we are not a people of the word, we are going to be a people that's going to be tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine. And the unfortunate thing is that when things are going good in our lives, the easiest thing to neglect is the word. Instead of saying, no, this is when we should be at it at our best. When we at our best is when we should be reading the word. I've told people, never read a self-help book when you're depressed. Because the first two-thirds or three-quarters of the book will put you even more depressed. Because the whole basis of a self-help book is to point out every possible thing that could be wrong, and sort of the last part of the book, you can find help. The time to read a self-help book is when you're feeling really, really good about yourself. You know, and read novels or something else when you're depressed. It's the opposite with the scripture. We, when we're feeling good, we should be reading the scripture. And yet when people, you know, when they're feeling good, they go, well, God's been good to me. I can put this on the shelf now. I don't need to study it. I, didn't, I don't need to know how to apply it to my life. And then when things go bad, we pick it up and we start reading and go, man, I feel miserable about myself. Look at all the things I'm doing wrong. And we don't live in God's grace. We don't live in God's transforming power. Um, he says we must not be misled. So we must read the scripture. And if I was going to cause you to feel guilty about anything, which I don't do very often, I don't think, at least intentionally, this would be an intentional thing. If you're not reading the Bible, do it. Do it. If you're not in any kind of a study, do it. If you're not on right now media, do it. If you're not in any kind of opportunity where you can just do a daily devotional, do it. And if you don't know how to do it, find somebody who has got a plan and talk to them. Okay? And we're going to just continue to provide opportunities where we can study the scripture in different ways. And Diggs is just one of them. Secondly, in verse 6, he says, don't be disturbed. Don't be frightened. Don't be discouraged. Don't be despairing. Don't be despondent when you see these tremendously unsettling events occur. Now, I don't know about you. When I see these events, it's not easy for me not to be a little disturbed. It's not easy for me not to think, okay, the end is near. And it is nearer than it ever was before. But, you know, um, but sometimes it's not easy for me to be a little bit despondent. And Jesus is saying, I got this one, Andy. I got this. I created this world. I created this universe. 
I've ordered it, I know what's going to take place, I know how it's going to take place, and not only do I know how it's going to take place, I know why it's going to take place. And you only look at the how and you question it, but I've got it all planned out. So when these things happen, let it go. Let it go. See it for what it is, but, but trust it. So it says, don't be disturbed. Don't think that God doesn't know that this was coming. Jesus is saying, don't be frightened. Don't be disturbed. Don't be discouraged by this. God planned it, and God will bring you through this. Thirdly, he says in verse 13, and this is actually a word of encouragement, he says, all who endure will be saved. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, this isn't salvation like we're talking about, but that when you can be able to endure through this, you will also receive the glory of God. He's really not putting a condition on our salvation, but this is actually a word of encouragement. You're going to endure this, and when you endure it, you're going to come out on the other side victorious. He says, I know what I'm telling you to do is going to be difficult. I know it's going to be difficult. But there is a hope at the end of your travail. There is a hope at the end of that tribulation. Victory will be yours. There is a crown of glory set before you in your struggle. And so everyone who endures will receive that crown. Um, they'll receive the full blessing of God's grace, God's love, God's salvation. And then fourthly, he says, the kingdom is going to be proclaimed to the nations. This is an encouragement regarding the scope of the kingdom. But it's also a challenge to us. Because he's saying the kingdom is going to be proclaimed to all the earth. But then he also tells us at the end of Matthew our responsibility in that. Go ye therefore to make disciples of all nations. Why? Because it's part of God's plan. Why? Because his kingdom is going to be proclaimed. And how is it going to be proclaimed? Not by a bunch of non-believers. It's going to be proclaimed because believers are saying, you know what, regardless of what's taking place around I have a God who's in control. Regardless of what's going on, God has said, I've got this. And he said also that I am supposed to reflect that and share that and show that. And so in all of this, there's, we will focus on the signs and people will start getting out their charts and saying, okay, this is when it's going to happen, and this has happened, and now this has happened, and we only have two more things before Jesus returns. And you know what? They do that, and it doesn't change evangelism one bit. And if we really knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, who would be the person that you'd want to tell to make sure that they're going to be in heaven with you? Well, we don't know when he's coming, and so we're supposed to be telling those people that daily. Daily. That's the Great Commission. And it follows because of the great command to love others as God loved us. Now, God loved us to save us. We are to love others to inform them of the same love that God showed us. Um... I don't know where I am. So, that's good. <laughs>
another smooth ending. <laughs> so, Father, we just praise you and thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we enter into a couple of chapters that talk about prophecy, talk about your return, Lord, help us to not lose sight of what's truly important, that you are returning. And not only are you returning, but you have called us to not lose sight, not to lose heart, to not fear, and not to be deceived, but to truly put that which is important first. And Lord, help us to be a people who are transformed, transformed by your spirit, by your word, and bold but loving in our witness, proclaiming your truth, not arrogantly, but with a humility that says, I love you, and I want you to find the love that I have found in Christ. Yeah, Father, we thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. amen.